0: Galatians, chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party
1: you may be seated. This passage has one of the most stunning scenes of the early church and really of the Bible because in it we get an opportunity to see something that you would imagine would never happen, which is two apostles having a conflict where one, Paul, to his face is directly confronting Peter. And This isn't a private encounter. This is public encounter and it's being recorded in scripture for all time. And so we have to step back and think, what's going on? Something is very serious and it's taking place. And we know thus far as we've been going through Galatians that what has been taking place is the preaching of a different gospel. And this different gospel is so subtle that even someone like Peter and Barnabas, Barnabas, if you can recall, was one of the earliest disciples who actually brought Paul into the church. Formerly Saul of Tarsus, who was the violent, insolent persecutor, and it was Barnabas who was truly the son of encouragement, who was willing to stand by Paul when everyone else was afraid of him. So, if anyone would uh, would you would be surprised by who would. Shriek back in this context, it would have been Barnabas, because Barnabas wasn't that type of person. And yet even Barnabas was being swayed, as Paul describes. So you can imagine how threatening this different gospel was. The true gospel proclaims that we are justified by faith alone, through grace alone. And that's de- in that we are declared righteous by Jesus' blood, blood shed for us. It's in a, a perfect atoning work, the work that forgives sins, that counts us as righteous when we see the Father, and that righteous sacrifice is the only sacrifice acceptable to God. And so only his righteousness makes us righteous to be sons and daughters, adopted sons and daughters, welcomed into the family of God. That's at the core the essence of what Paul is arguing And it's also what is being debated within this church, and it is being confronted in this context. And so I want to look at this story and examine it, first by looking at some of the hindrances to justification in verses 11 through 14. And then secondly, the reality of justification itself in verses 15 and 16. So what causes them to be hindered, and then understanding the idea of being justified. So first, the hindrances. Last week, I spoke about one of the hindrances. It was the Jesus plus hindrance, you know, obstacle, threat to the gospel. As we see, it would really be an oversimplification, though, to think that the Jews were just simply bigoted or prejudiced. And it's actually that type of idea that led to a lot of the distortions Historically, even Martin Luther had a little bit of this type of prejudice. And so moving forward, you had someone like Hitler coming along and saying, see the Jews, they were always against what was right, what was good. That really, truly is an oversimplification. And that's not what's happening here. Thus far, the gospel was being proclaimed in Jerusalem, which is in the Palestine region of Israel. Jews are turning to Jesus, accepting the gospel. And if you can just picture it, that you have in Jerusalem these Jews who are turning to Christ. And Jews, just like any culture, they have a common language. They have a common culture, traditions, festivals, foods. And so all of these things make up the the religious and cultural identity of the Jewish people. So when a Jew becomes a Christian in Jerusalem, they turn to Christ, but they also have these feasts and, and the way of dress and the foods that they eat, just like any ethnic group. Now, Antioch, which is where one of the cities where, uh, within Galatia, that's outside, it's near Turkey, so it's nowhere near them. And so despite the difference of geography, the Jews that are in Antioch, they still dress the same, they look the same, they eat the same foods, they celebrate the same festivals. In fact, for those who are from immigrant cultures, perhaps say a place like Mexico, or China, or um, different places, what happens is actually oftentimes when people migrate to another region or another country, they usually maintain the same foods and cultures and music, dress. There's a little bit of an adaptation, but generally, the cultural aspects, the feasts, all those things remain the same. In fact, sometimes there's almost like this fortress mentality of immigrants where they create enclaves and they become more embedded to the culture of their day than the people back at home. If you are from an immigrant culture, you know this to be true, is that sometimes people who have migrated and have come, say, even generations later, they've sort of are stuck in a certain place, whereas the the native peoples from that original country, they've progressed and moved on. So language has shifted. Dress has shifted. But those who are in that new culture, there's an enclave and they tend to hold tightly to traditions. Also, at this time, the Jews in Antioch and throughout much of the Roman Empire, they were being persecuted by Romans. And so the Romans, as they're persecuting and they're sensing a sense of prejudice, all the more there is that fortress-like mentality. So the Jewish Christians, If you can imagine, they're hearing in Antioch. They they turn to Christ, but then there's this idea that, well, actually, to believe in Jesus means that the works of the law are no longer applying to you. It's not so shocking that there's this automatic aversion to that idea. This sense that, well, why can't I believe in Jesus, but still abide by the works of the law to make me righteous because of the works of the law was yes, a legal standard, but it was also a cultural standard for them. And so because of that, there was a desire to cling to that, to say, I don't want to lose my ethnic identity to believe in Jesus. Can I do both? Can I have both? Doesn't believing in Jesus as well as holding on to my traditions, isn't that valid as well? doesn't that also make me righteous before God? Especially something along the lines of Old Testament Jewish law, Mosaic law. That seems to make sense. I think we can understand why this is, if you really grasp that, you can see why this is such a difficult problem for those who are Christians in this context. Unless we think this is just a problem of the New Testament early church, It's actually quite a challenge for us today, because what you have throughout the world is a gospel. It's a gospel that we believe is true, and it's given directly by Jesus himself, by his spirit. But that gospel has to be preached in all different languages, and all different cultural contexts. And so when that happens, The challenge is, how do you contextualize that gospel? How do you make that gospel adaptable? Something that people of all cultures can understand without losing the core fundamental truth of that gospel. That actually happens in Muslim countries. And sometimes there's this desire to make it fit in so much that it slowly starts losing the truth. So for example, one example of that is there's a real debate amongst, amongst people who study missions, the idea of calling the God of the Bible Allah and saying, well, why can't we just use as a sort of a strategic methodology to try to bring and communicate the gospel to Muslims Why don't we just call God, any reference to God in the Bible, just use the word Allah. That would make it so much easier. Now, that there's a lot, don't have enough time to describe why that's a really bad idea. But you could see why slow contextualization can make something go from something that seems like a decent idea to slowly subverting into something completely different. Again, you might think, well, what is this, how does this bear out? Well, places like Papua New Guinea, let's say. Do you need to dress like this and sing hymns written in Old English and transport that over? Can they sing and dress in their own music styles and their own clothing? And, but what about bringing the gospel to a place where there's polygamy? Can you allow for polygamy to still exist in the church? But it's so much part of the tradition. There are many, many different aspects of this that are so complex and not so easy to unpack. And missiologists have been studying this and thinking through this throughout. But it's really the same question that is cropping up here. You can understand then how challenging the circumstances have become amongst the apostles. Because this Jesus plus gospel is so subtle and it is so deeply ingrained in our cultural and ethnic identity, no matter what the culture is. So the culture can be racial or ethnic, but the culture can be a club, a group of people. Your family has a culture. And talk about a really tight-knit culture that is exclusive, it's your family. To follow Jesus might mean, you have to abide by my rules and my family, your family has rules. And sometimes we think that it's actually Jesus. Once I follow Jesus, we're following, our family is shaping around Jesus, but actually how often is it that Jesus is actually being shaped to our family? Hence why so often we have this idea that if our son or daughter said, mom, dad, it just feel so convicted to sell everything I have and go overseas and be a missionary. What would be your first instinct? And I think I shared this last week. Would your first instinct be, praise God, amen? Or would it be, whoa, 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 wait a second. That might not be a good idea. See, we say with our mouths, I love you, Jesus. I will give you everything. But with our actions, our family culture dictates our faith. That's a Jesus plus gospel, whether we realize it or not. Or if we're in the church and there are certain groupings of people and you only love hanging out with this group of people, but then someone comes along and says, hey, can I join your group? But they're different. They don't, they're very silent. They they just don't fit. They're a little odd. Are they welcome to that group, even though it creates an incredibly different dynamic? Or is it, no, 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 you don't fit in. See, every grouping of people has a culture, a cultural identity. And the question always is, what is going to determine that identity? You, your grouping of people, or Christ? Unless you say, oh, definitely Jesus. Well, if it is Jesus, you will find that group transformed in ways sometimes that you actually don't necessarily always like because it's not comfortable. It doesn't click together so well. There's a, the word click is a very interesting word, isn't it? I mean, it's in the French, but it's, it's interesting. It's meant to have this idea of all of the parts just connecting perfectly, the clicking of things together, you might say. Well, Jesus doesn't fit into that type of atmosphere because he makes things a little off kilter. But the economy of God is that when we trust him, it is ultimately going to fit perfectly together. We just don't like the way that works so often. So the Jesus plus gospel is truly a hindrance to the gospel itself. Secondly is the fear of man. Look at verse 12, but when they came... He drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Food, as in all cultures, is so central to life. I think we all know that. I mean, we miss eating out, don't we? Eating in restaurants, eating with a group of people, laughing and enjoying. And so, for the Jewish people, the dietary laws are a significant part of their culture. First of all, it determined that they were God's people. It made them special. And it was a significant part of their lives. And so their stringency on these laws focused on that truth. They were God's people. And they were unlike the people around them. The dietary laws reminded them that they were God's people who did not worship other gods. They did not have have the food they were eating because they bowed down and sacrificed to all these different fertility gods. That's what these native peoples did around them, is they used food to worship other gods. So when Israel kept these strict dietary laws, it was meant to say, we only worship one God. And it's God who makes us holy. And that's exactly the message that Peter learned. The same Peter in Acts chapter 10. Some of you might recall the story where Peter has a vision, and in this vision, a sheet filled with animals drops from heaven, and we read in Acts 10, 13 to 14, he hears a voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything what is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again a second time, what God has made clean, do not call common. Peter and all other Jews believed it was the food you ate that made you either clean or unclean, holy or unholy. But what Peter learns in this vision is that it's not the food that makes you holy and unholy. It's God who makes that which you eat or you holy or unholy. Now keep that in mind because look at the scene that's taking place in Galatians, in this story, we see that Peter is just like all of us. He has a fear of man. He wants to fit in. He struggles. And what happens is that he knows the gospel. Remember, Paul's whole point is he's saying, we believe this. We meaning Peter, me and you, we believe this gospel that is found only by, just, we're justified by faith alone through grace alone, not by our works. You believe this. So why are you shrieking back? Why are you not taking hold of this? Because he's forgotten the gospel. He hasn't applied it to his heart. The fear of man is greater than his desire to understand Christ. He was so fearful that at one point, he think about it. He's enjoying food. He's, he's sitting eating with the Gentiles. As soon as this circumcision party, this uh, the party from Jerusalem Comes, he gets up and he leaves. He drew back, it says, and separated himself. Are you drawing back and separating yourself from others because you fear opinions? You know, that word drawback, it's a military word. It's a word of withdrawal of troops. And when I read that, I thought the first thought that came to my mind was when. David had sent Uriah to the front line, Uriah the Hittite, and they're all moving forward, and David had ordered Joab, his commander, to pull back all the troops so that Uriah would be alone. And that's exactly what happened. Uh, Joab pulled back all the troops so that Uriah was by himself and he was struck down and killed. We might not realize it, but... When we pull back because of the fear of the opinions of others, we leave people to fight alone. That's how tragic it is. If, if there's a point where our, our fear of man is so great that we pull back and withdraw so that someone is alone. Maybe we say, I don't like this person. I don't want to be seen with this person. Might even be someone within our church and saying, you know, I don't, I don't like this person and we pull back. There's a physical withdrawing. Isn't this the same idea? Maybe we're sitting with a group of people and they all belong into our culture, our culture of friends, our culture of ethnicity, our culture of life stage and as soon as someone comes in there's a withdrawing there's a desire to not be with that person because they don't fit into our crowd and again this is so subtle i don't think we intentionally do this but this is the sinful human nature that just comes into play within our hearts oh this person's going to mess up our game they you're playing a you know Teenagers, you're playing a group of uh, a really great game of basketball, and someone comes along and says, "Can I play?" And you know they stink, <laughs> and you know that if they play, it's not going to be the same game. Anyone who's played volleyball competitively, you, you might have experienced this: is that volleyball is a very interesting sport because it's very when it's done well, it's it's literally like a symphony. I was watching this just the other night of uh, the 1984 and 88 U.S. Olympic team. It's one of the Two of the greatest teams ever playing volleyball. And when you watch it, it's actually really beautiful. Well, there's always this, there's a expression of when someone who really doesn't know how to play that well, they come in and play and the game completely changes from this really ultra competitive game to what's called jungle ball. It literally is. Suddenly it just becomes, you just try to get the ball over the net. And you might be thinking, isn't that the purpose of volleyball? But there's actually all this strategy behind it. And when that happens, there's automatically this inclination, I wish that person wasn't here so we can really have fun. I just wonder if sometimes, even within the church, we have that idea, that mentality of, That person messes up our dynamic of what is fun, what is good. And this is exactly the problem that was happening in the church. And so people were building this idea of ethnic, spiritual identity that someone is invading. And truly, Paul says this is an affront to the gospel. Thanks be to God that Jesus didn't withdraw from us that he didn't pull back. Seeing us and saying, you know what? You so do not fit into our community, I think I'm gonna pull back from you. In fact, if God were to do that to us, it would be the most frightful experience you would ever have eternally. But Jesus didn't withdraw from us, even in the midst of knowing every wretched sin of our soul. I often think that when we think about all the different uh, challenges that we're seeing even today amongst evangelical leaders of people falling from the Lord. And I know our instinct is to want to be so quick to throw those stones verbally, even post it on the internet. But just wondered if if the world could see what is truly in our hearts and in our mind all the time would any one of us be able to withstand that type of scrutiny? A long time ago, when Charles Spurgeon or earlier, you know, much earlier, you didn't have the internet, so you didn't have as much uh, the voices and the negativity that is, and the criticism that is pouring out all over. Today, everything is sort of left out in the open for anyone to criticize, but what if in the future there's better ways Maybe more ways to take all that you've said to Alexa. All all the cameras that you're now, and now that all goes into the central database and everything that you've ever said in your whole life, even in private, is now on the web. In some sort of communal space where now everyone knows all your private words would any one of us be able to withstand that type of scrutiny? Thanks be to God that Jesus, who knows far more than even that, did not withdraw from you. Instead, he stepped forward to the cross for you, knowing all of what you are. This is every reason why uh, next that Paul says another great hindrance to the gospel is hypocrisy. And the rest of the Jews, verse 13, acted hypocritically along with him so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas, again, was hypocritical. And that's why Paul just confronts them dead on. It's a stark warning for all of us. If Barnabas could become a hypocrite and Peter, who amongst us is not a hypocrite? Could we ever withstand being able to live up to the standard that even we ourselves set upon others. If we have a um, a list of all the ways that we criticize someone, other people, whether it's politicians, Christian leaders, the church, friends, spouses, if we were to write up that list onto a notebook, and then instead of judging all those people, put yourself on that list, how many of us could withstand that type of scrutiny and judgment? Even Peter and Barnabas fell to this hypocrisy. When we are free from hypocrisy, you know what the opposite of it truly is? Grace. The gracious person knows they're a hypocrite. Because you know you're a hypocrite, you're not so quick to be one who is critical and judgmental of others. In fact... Grace causes you to be forgiving because you say, I know how that feels. If given certain circumstances, I would be there. I would be the drug addict. I would be the prostitute. I would be the pimp. I would be the alcoholic. But it's because we have this idea that we're morally above all those things. And we would never do anything like that. Should we ever be surprised when someone falls? No. I'm not saying we should look for that or think that everyone's going to fall. But actually, what keeps us from falling is remembering that we need grace and that we extend that grace and mercy to others. And the more you are gracious, especially now more than ever before, you will stand out in this crooked generation because everybody in our generation wants to punish, to get rid of, to cancel to wipe out, to obliterate, to criticize, to destroy. This society, the church, needs to be more gracious than ever before. And if we can only get to that point, then we will see the world saying, that is different. But if we're going to be out there, and everybody who messes up and fails and falls, and we're going to just be alongside the rest of them saying, oh yeah, look at them, We become very much the crowd. How would we have been any different in that crowd where we're saying, crucify him, crucify him. We're in a crucifying culture. And until we actually become a people who understand, no, we should be the crucified ones, only then will we be able to stand up in this culture. Are we willing to stand up for the power of the gospel before any prejudices. That when we think about it, isn't it interesting how often sinners who looked like sinners in Jesus' day, the tax collectors, the prostitutes, they were the ones who loved to eat with Jesus. I mean, how often they were dining with Jesus. And then the people who loved ritual cleansing and were trying to live holy. They didn't want to be seen with Jesus. And when they even dine with Jesus, like Simon in Luke 7, it was to try to trap him. Dining together is messy, especially when it's not on our terms. When someone doesn't say thank you for the meal, when you can't control the invitation list because I didn't expect that person to come, but they invited themselves, Or your place isn't clean enough. The menu, look at what you're serving. It's not good enough. We want to control everything because that's how things should be done. A couple of weeks ago, I was making dinner, and Sue was giving me suggestions as to how I should, you know, some of the things that I should make. And my first instinct, I said it to her, I said, don't tell me what to do. (laughs) You know, I'm... You know, I'm I'm so great, I'm cooking dinner, and so you shouldn't tell me how to. I thought about that afterward, and I thought, well, what a self-righteous, arrogant fool. It it just that just leads to misery. Paul confronts this heart dead on, the hypocritical heart, and we are all hypocrites. What is the answer to all this, these hindrances? We're justified. Verses 15, 16, I'll go into it in much more detail this part next week because there's a lot to unpack here. Just going to really touch on it. Again, if anyone could claim that the law does not apply, it would have been the Pharisee of ph- Pharisees, Saul of Tarsus. Which is why he emphasizes in verse 15, he says that they are Jews by ver- birth. There's no doubt of that. The works of the law... They are important, but they need to be used rightly. They need to be used rightly. And that if they are seen as a a warning light, they tell us that something is wrong. They are the blood pressure machine. They are the, the CAT scan, the CT scan that says, you have cancer. The scan itself doesn't actually cure your cancer. It doesn't actually do anything. But it is important. It tells you something is seriously wrong. So the law has its place. But if you try to use the CT scanner to get rid of your cancer, you're dead. You're hopeless. You need a radical transformation. And so it's the gospel that brings that up. It's justification by faith alone through grace alone that changes your heart. But the law has its place. We just need to see it rightly, and we'll talk a lot more about this. The danger is when we think the law does change you. And what Isaiah says is that the law are righteous deeds. Any type of attempt by us to righteously perform good deeds for God Isaiah calls them filthy rags. I shared this with my uh, the Old Testament theology group, but it's you know it's imagine you have worked out really hard and sweated, and you take your gym socks and your all your clothing, and you you know they're all sweaty and dripping with sweat. You don't do anything, but you stick them into a small little bag, and then you keep it for a month, and you open it up, and I want you to try doing this. Kids, try doing this at home and show your parents, okay? And then you open it up and let them smell it. It's going to stink so bad. You'll throw up. Isaiah says, your righteous deeds, going to church, missions. Because Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.13, even if you surrender your body to the flames, even if you martyr yourself, if you think that's going to change your heart, It's nothing but that disgusting-smelling, sweaty rag. Our righteous deeds, no matter how seemingly righteous they are, will never make us righteous. We need Christ. We need his power. We need his kindness. But most of all, we need his righteousness. And his righteousness put into our account and our sins placed on him at the cross, is what frees us, is what changes us, what transforms us, what gives us joy, past, present, and future, forever. Pastor J.D. Greer tells of the time his oldest daughter, Karis, was six years old. She was, like some of our kids at that age, very timid, scared. And he couldn't try to get her to attempt any new things because she was always scared and refused to do so. And for those of you who have children who are timid, shy, scared, you can appreciate how he feels. So he tried several times, couldn't get her to change. One day, he and his other daughter, his uh, four-year-old, Allie, were in the car. They're driving to the state fair. And he spoke to Karis and said, maybe this year we can do the Ferris wheel. And Karis's response was, no, daddy, I don't want to. And he responded, Karis, you know you're just going to have to be brave. Sometimes you just have to try new things. And she responded, I know, daddy, but sometimes I feel like I'm just a big scaredy cat. And in frustration, he said, that's right, Karis. Sometimes you are a scaredy cat. and You'll never go anywhere until you become brave enough. And that's when four-year-old Allie spoke up and said, no, Karis, you are not a scaredy cat. You are my big sister. And this is what he said in response. He said, I felt like someone slapped me in the face with a two-by-four. I thought, great, my four-year-old is the voice of the Holy Spirit, and I'm the voice of Satan. (laughs) When you're justified by faith alone through grace alone, you have a new identity. You are pleasing to God not because of what you do or even fail to do. You're pleasing to God because you've been justified by faith in Christ Jesus. And that identity never changes throughout your life. You are loved. You are an adopted son and daughter of the Heavenly Father. You are justified. And you must never forget this. And when you live with that truth in light of Christ and the gospel and all that he's done, That's when true freedom comes. That's when you're not afraid of other people's opinions. You live in light of the fear of God. And that's an unsurpassable joy. That's what we call the gospel, the good news. Let me close with Augustus Toplady's words in Rock of Ages. Not the labors of my hands can fulfill thy laws demands, could my zeal no respite know? Could my tears forever flow? All for sin could not atone. Thou must save, and thou alone. Let's pray together. Father, we so often come to you with this idea that something we do makes you happy with us. Sadly, we take that idea and we maybe think of our own families, our own children. We pass along that destructive perspective. Forgive us, O Lord. First of all, for thinking that something that we have obtained makes us righteous and makes you happy with us. No, all of that is filthy. We have something far better. We have the work of your son, Jesus. We know the cross of Christ is what we need, that we've been declared righteous by faith alone, the grace alone. And so we thank you that we can look to Jesus. We can look to him and believe that only by Christ do we need anything by which we live with joy. So Father, thank you for justification. Thank you for showing us that you love us always. Even when we are in this place where we are turned from you, where we are struggling, where we are weak, we thank you that you still look at us as someone who is favored because you love us so much through your son. We want to respond to you by just singing of how much we are so thankful for Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name.